You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, February 12th, 2007. Episode 6, Daniel Ingram, You Can Do It. This is our first podcast with Daniel Ingram, MD, an authorized teacher in the Theravada tradition and an avid fan of outright honesty with regards to the spiritual path. In this episode, Daniel, aka Dharma Dan, shares some of his more formative experiences as a meditator, touches on some of the Buddhist maps of awakening, and shares a powerful message, namely that enlightenment is possible. This is part one of a three-part series. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast, please visit www.buddhistgeeks.com forward slash advertise. I think the main thing we're interested in is finding out a little bit about you and then also also about your perspective on the Buddhist teachings, on the specifically the Theravada teachings. And I thought we could start with maybe like a little overview of your path and sort of how that unfolded for you, maybe the key points of your practice or what teachers you worked with, what techniques they were giving you and, and that sort of thing. Well, let's see here. I guess my practice started um, in some sort of uh, non-formal way. I have this memory of being about three years old and attaining to what I now know to be the fourth uh, Shamadajana, <laughs> which supposedly is not that unusual. And um, I remember laying in my parents' uh, bed downstairs in this uh, house we had in Massachusetts and remembering that I had attained this state before. Now, I have no memory of attaining it after that, so that's probably the last time I did it for almost 20-something years. Um, And then when I was about 14 or 15 years old, somewhere in that year, I uh, had been meditating a lot at night. I didn't know it was meditating, but I I love flying dreams, and so I was practicing before I went to sleep, and I would visualize uh, planets, kind of like large billiard balls of various colors and sort of practice imagining myself flying between them. Now, as soon as you start attempting to visualize anything clearly, you quickly run into problems of intention and delay and, and, uh, noticing thoughts and, uh, you know, all the standard problems that you run into when you start trying to concentrate on anything. And before I knew it, I had crossed the arising and passing away. I had no idea what that was. I had this weird dream of, uh, uh, this brightly uh, lit scene and this long dusty road and this huge black witch riding up on it um, on this big black horse and she pointed her magic wand and let out this unbelievably bright burst of light and my entire consciousness just exploded like a fireworks display all over my bedroom is the best way to explain it. Um, and I remember sort of tingling and twitching and sputtering and trying to figure out which way was up and sort of, you know, going from, uh, you know, very high consciousness dream state to uh, awakening with my world exploding all over the place and having no idea what that was. And from that point on, I was pretty much in trouble because, um, you know, I was then dealing with the dark night and had no idea what that was or that there was such a thing or, you know, why it was making me feel the way I was feeling and um, it pretty much, you know, wouldn't be until years later that I had any idea what was going on. You, you've mentioned a couple of things, the shamatha jhana, and you've mentioned uh, what you're calling the arising and passing away, and then also the dark night. So I was wondering, since you, you use that terminology pretty frequently, I was wondering if maybe you could just give a brief overview of what you mean by that. 
Yeah, so ashramata jhana is a stable um, concentration state where you're paying attention to some object. In that case, I was just paying attention to the object of peace and equanimity itself. Um, but uh, it can be any concentration practice where you just stabilize your mind on something and then attain to progressively wider and more refined and subtle states of uh, some something like stable consciousness. And the arising and passing away is a sort of a pivotal um, event often referred to as Kundalini awakening or pseudo nirvana or, um, you know, sort of seeing the light people who have, you know, in the Christian tradition have these sort of conversion experiences where they shake and tremble and cry and, you know, see lights and, you know, um, then become hardcore, you know, born again Christians or, you know, all the traditions have their version of it. And talk about it, um, but it's a sort of a profound uh, uh, moment um, characterized by, you know, lights and energy things and spontaneous movements usually and and uh, heightened states of clarity and meditating while dreaming and all that kind of stuff. And it tends to lead immediately to the dark night, which is um, St. John of the Cross's terminology for uh, what happens after you cross that high sort of peak religious experience, however you want to describe it or categorize it, um, in which one tends to feel relatively dissatisfied with life, with jobs, more inclined to spiritual practice, um, but can involve all kinds of other very complicated psychological um, and cultural twists and turns as well. So, you know, um, tricky uh, to define. Uh, anyway, and and these things tend to be stage stage like sequences. Yeah, they pretty much uh, almost mechanically and seemingly inevitably inevitably follow uh, one another. Anybody who crosses what I call the arising and passing away, and lots of people call lots of other things, uh, will enter uh, dark night territory. Um, unfortunately, not everybody who enters dark night territory will then get to the way out of it, which is the equanimity stages and then first stages of enlightenment or awakening or whatever you want to call it. Um, so there are a very, very large number of people stuck in dark night territory, whether they know it or not, or even call it that. Um, uh, and, uh, have no idea that that's what's going on and don't know what to do with it. In fact, if you hang out in spiritual scenes and start asking questions about, you know, the sequence of what's occurred in people's practice, you very quickly will realize that lots of people are out there who have, had these things happen and now that's why they're hardcore into whatever they're into and followed following some sort of a spiritual path yeah and, and you were you ended up finding that territory almost an accident when you're 15 you said so how did, how did the you, accident go ahead how did you get out of that or, or did you yeah so uh, well i i sort of got out of it <laughs> um I got out of it and then into more of it. So that's the, the, the curse that once you've ever crossed it, you're going to live a significant portion of the rest of your life in the dark night, rather, whether or not you get out of it or not. So, and what I mean by that is I went on to get what I call stream entry, or you could call, you know, being entering the first Bodhisattva Bhumi or the, you know, fourth stage of the second path in the Tibetan five path system or whatever, you know, pick your favorite map in some other system and uh you know first stage of awakening whatever and i uh did that on my sixth day of my fourth retreat um with christopher titmus and some of his uh friends in the insight meditation tradition um in bodh gaya india in 1996 january 13th 
And then, and then what happened after that? I guess you continued practicing. Yeah. Then I, then I was really in trouble. Um, because then you're really in it. And so, and, and being in it would sound like a great thing. And in some ways it is. And in other ways, it's a very strange thing because then, you know, stage by stage, the, you are in the flow of the, the path of awakening and awakening, um, is sort of excruciating a lot of the time and involves, um, coming back down and down and down and down and down again into the depths of one's own basic human experience, much of which is really not much fun and relatively embarrassing from any idealist point of view and, uh, kind of hard. And so, um, and you're going to cycle from then on. So all day long, you will cycle. You will, you know, start out at what I call the rising and passing away and into the dark night and, you know, going up to equanimity and get your hit of, you know, uh, you know, emptiness or, you know, the first meaning of the word nirvana, you know, which is sort of this interesting discontinuity experience that shakes perceptions about subject and object. And then reality rearises and you go through the cycle again. You do that day after day, week after week. And then before you know it, you're into new territory on a new level that you haven't really developed well. And it's, you know, messing with your life. And before you know it, you're in a new dark night and, you know, having to deal with all the relationship and job issues. And then before you know it, there's a new cycle finishing up and then you go back through it again and again and again. And that becomes essentially the, uh, the daily, weekly and yearly rhythm of your life. Hmm. Is there a direction that all of that's heading in? Is there something that's progressively happening, changing in your experience or, or is it just sort of endless and nothing kind of changing? Um, Well, the endlessness is sort of an interesting way to put it, but, um, the cycles continue. So some, once you've started cycling, you're always going to cycle. It's almost like being rapid cycling, manic depressive or something. You're going to cycle. Uh, that's just the nature of the beast. Now, um, that said, that cycling seems to do something which the traditions have tend to describe as being useful or even holy or profound or something. But, um, essentially what happens is, uh, layer by layer of your consciousness and experience you begin to notice that those th- those things are not um, split up in the way that we thought they were, and there there is not the independent, uh, discrete, um, steady, continuous, uh, controlling, observing, isolated um, entity in the center of it all that is either thinking or observing thoughts or doing or you know being done to or you know, whatever it is. So that, that sense of things uh, progressively uh, begins to be weakened until finally the last hints of that illusion uh, just suddenly uh, stop. Um, and the knot of perception uh, that was clouding uh, things and making us think that we were a subject or a doer or an independent entity or a continuous person um, is gone. That said, all the processes that were there uh um, making us think that, as to use paradoxical language, all those processes of identification, of thought, of emotional life, of psychology, of thinking the word I, of intention, of, uh, you know, all the sensations of the body and thoughts and everything that went into that are still there, essentially happening like they did before. So they were causal and empty before, and they're causal and empty afterwards, and suddenly that's just understood. 
And that's at once a good thing in that um, it does tend to help the system function as best it possibly can, given the limitations of the human condition. And yet it's also um, having stripped away the sort of defense mechanism of the sense of a center point. uh, One is left intimately uh, connected and integrated with reality in a way that you now can't get out of. And that has a certain uh, sometimes excruciating and embarrassing aspect to it, uh, just owing to the nature of humanity. What's so shocking about your work or or maybe your sort of online or public image is that you actually claim that this is something that's complete, that you've actually completed in your own experience. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting. You know, there, there's this amazingly long tradition of doing so. And if if you look at the early life of the Buddhist Sangha, the Buddha, we'll, we'll take him as the example, since we're talking in a Buddhist context, you know, the Buddha's name itself means, you know, essentially I am awake or awakened one, or, you know, however you like to translate it. And, you know, and so the guy's calling himself by his name, the awakened one, just sort of on the face of it. It's a bold statement. And then if you look at the early, you know, Sangha, Sariputta, and, you know, Mahamogalana and all these people were all known for being arhats with powers. And they talked, you know, amongst each other about what they could do and what their strengths and weaknesses were. And if you go back and read the lives and histories or the old sutras of these people, they were always just talking in frank, open terms about how it could be done, who had done it, how you did it, you know, as if that was the point, which it was. And then for thousands of years, you know, you have things like, you know, uh, 900 years later or so, you know, the, um, you have books being written by people who claim to be anagamis and books being written by people who claim to be arhats in the titles of their books, you know, the Vimudi Maga, you know, by the arhat, you know, Upatisa and the Vasudhi Maga by the anagami, you know, Buddhaghosa and, and, you know, and essentially the very, you know, all the traditions that have a lineage, essentially you can't be in that lineage without saying you're enlightened. It's the same thing. And so, for 2,500 years, we've had, you know, countless thousands of people in all these lineages and all these traditions essentially saying, I'm enlightened. And then all of a sudden, someone thinks it's weird that someone would go and follow those ancient practices, which led to so many other people getting it, or, you know, assuming they were claiming it correctly. And then why should we think it's weird that, you know, someone did it today when, you know, we have excellent resources. We have fantastic Dharma. We have unbelievable resources that are essentially unprecedented in history. We have political freedom, religious uh, freedom, um, good teachers, uh, many excellent traditions to draw on, all cross-pollinating, um, intellectual freedom, um, and all that. And, and so the, the conditions now are about as good as you could imagine for uh, the Dharma. And so, you know, it's strange that we should be surprised when these, you know, ancient and highly developed time-tested techniques uh, lead to results um, that I'm saying that I've done it um, mm. is essentially me saying, hey, it can be done. Right. Um, and it can be done today and it can be done by people, you know, that are just ordinary people, which I am, mm-hmm. um, just by following the instructions, which I did. And... Uh, so that's basically my take on it. Hmm. And how long from roughly like the beginning of your formal practice to the time where you could, with pretty high degree of certainty, say, hey, it's it's done? Well, yeah, it's a good question. So 
you've got to remember that I see, seasoned in the dark night sort of without even realizing that was going on for about 10 years from the time I was 14 or 15 until the time um, I got it uh, um, in early 1996. Um, when I was, I guess, 25 years old or something, 26, how old was I? Somewhere in there. And then from that point until, uh, finishing it up with another, you know, about seven and a half months of retreat and countless thousands of hours of daily practice and having read about 120 Dharma books and you know, lots of conversations with extraordinarily good and rare and amazing teachers and very good instruction. Um, it took me about another, let's see, or till what year was that? Uh, just after medical school. So that would have been, uh, 2003, April. So 1996, 2003 is about, you know, seven years. Um, and so, you know, uh, is that that long? Is that not very long? I don't know. The conditions were extraordinarily good, um, so it's no surprise that things should have turned out well. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.